Welcome to Tech Insights from InfoTech Research Group, the podcast where our experts cut through all the noise and focus on what really matters for technology leaders. As the battle against COVID-19 continues in the United States, 374 million vaccine doses have been given in the country. Of that portion, CVS Health alone has administered more than 30 million doses. The pharmacy is also the largest private provider of COVID-19 diagnostic testing services in the country. That's the power of having a network of retail locations and clinics that are just within 10 minutes drive of 85% of the U.S. population. And joining us today on Tech Insights to discuss the future of health is CVS Health Chairman David Dorman. Welcome, David. Thank you. Glad to be here. Also joining me today on Tech Insights is Research Fellow Ken McGee. Welcome to Ken. Thank you very much, Brian. Great, wonderful. Um, Dave, let's start with you here. You're in a unique position given your career with AT&T. You were the CEO there as well as chairman. And now you're a chairman in a completely different industry. I wonder what your time in the telecommunications space taught you and how that provides insights in your new role in the healthcare industry. Well, it- I would say, first of all, uh, I had a great curiosity upon joining the CVS board uh, 17 years ago. I was still at AT AT&T. And frankly, seeing the cost of healthcare increase dramatically uh, every year that I was CEO, um, something like 12 to 14 percent, really got my attention and understanding, you know, the the challenges uh, of managing healthcare for you know, 250,000 plus employees at AT&T. And frankly, uh, my instincts at the time uh, were, boy, we should be able to do something about this. Uh, and as I got into it, I became more, more and more convinced that the, the number of parties involved made it very hard to make lots of progress. You know, since that time, obviously, we've had Obamacare, we've had Obamacare light, we've had uh, drug price uh, management by the government, by the private sector. But generally speaking, uh, I'd say that my observation is that the, the choices, the therapies, uh, the information that we have about healthcare today is superior. And I think we're on the, the really the early days of seeing some dramatic uh, positive changes in the delivery of care. Uh, and certainly in therapies, it can be life-saving across a range of chronic diseases. So most of my early uh, effect was, my gosh, the costs of healthcare are accelerating dramatically. Uh, and over the last 17 years on the CVS board, I've been more informed about why that's true and how it can be better in the future. Right. Yeah. And I made reference at the beginning there to your network of stores and clinics And understandably, that still generates the lion's share of business for you. Uh, But with the pandemic, we've been seeing the rise of virtual healthcare, And you have a lot of virtual visits for your urgent care service. It's doubled. And uh, so as the use of your app since May of 2020. Uh, And then I read there was also a tenfold increase in home delivery of pharmaceuticals at that time. And I wonder in your position as chairman, David, what have you learned about the experience of delivering virtual healthcare? Well, I'd say, first of all, it, it meets the consumer's uh, desire 
to not only for convenience, but safety. Uh, if you think about your own experience in, in the past, going and sitting in a doctor's office with, you know, dozen, two dozen other people, particularly in a GP practice and, you know, knowing that some percentage of those people were ill, <laughs> they wouldn't be there, um, is particularly disconcerting during a pandemic. Uh, so the demand for virtual care and uptake of virtual care skyrocketed. Uh, if you can get a doctor's visit in, have a diagnosis, you know, remotely, I think not only is it generational, it's also something that uh, drives at the really heart, at the heart of convenience. The home delivery is another example, you know, with the advent of all of the various local services, you know, who are delivering food, the idea of delivering non-narcotic pharmaceuticals, in other words, things that are not controlled substances, uh, also has grown dramatically. And we began offering it uh, before the pandemic, but since that time, again, people not wanting necessarily to go even into a retail location. And that's been mitigated somewhat as we've gone through uh, vaccine uptake and uh, understanding better about how the virus is transmitted. But I think they are permanent uh, changes. And I think the virtual solutions that are evolving for specialty, uh, for example, I may have not thought about this, but uh, having mental health visits virtually has had a 200% increase compared to the same period last year. And so it's not just, you know, a skin rash or COVID symptoms diagnosis. Uh, and we also have the opportunity with our clinics. You mentioned the stores. You know, we have health hubs and minute clinics uh, in thousands of our locations which allow a nurse practitioner to actually assist a virtual doctor. So you can do a virtual visit from a health hub, you know, where the necessity for vital signs and other information that needs to be gathered can be done uh, there at the clinic. Still, you know, bring in a doctor from a remote, remote location. So it's sort of a hybrid, if you will. Yeah. And this hybrid model, I notice that there's a bit of a theme around that. And maybe that's just the reality of delivering healthcare these days. But uh, you mentioned uh, the mental health care aspect being increased recently. And I think that is pretty new to the CVS family. And it came through an acquisition. And there's another acquisition in the Aetna, a health insurance company. And you recently launched their Aetna Virtual Primary Care. And this also takes the approach of combining the diagnostics that you can get in your different clinics with that virtual care that you get at home, connecting you with healthcare practitioners via video conference or phone, perhaps. So tell me a bit more about that mix of virtual services with local delivered diagnostics. Is that the future of healthcare? I think so. Um, if you go back again before the, the COVID pandemic, uh, we were rolling out large-scale in-clinic testing for the flu. As you know, prior to 2019, uh, there were effective tests that could actually determine that you did have the flu virus, and then the proper appropriate course of treatment could be delivered. As you know, there are some antivirals that were available for the flu, and it's really critical that you get those within the first 72 hours if they're going to be effective. So the advent of diagnostics in the clinic 
uh, Minute Clinic or Health Hub, you know, really created a, a effective backstop to limit the effect that flu could have on someone. Because, you know, if you get it, most cases, it's a seven to 10 day course of, of infection effect, and then hopefully no further complications, which can occur like pneumonia and the like. And then here comes the COVID pandemic, and we end up very quickly creating diagnostic capabilities. Again, we, we can do in the store. And now we've gone to the next level, which is we're selling home test kits that people can you know, test themselves at home more frequently based on exposure they may think they had or you know, coming back from trips, I mean, various reasons you'd want to test more frequently. Uh, so we've evolved. And now the test platforms that we use in the stores you know, have the capability for test, to test for a number of pathogens not just uh, COVID, but some of the others. So it is uh, that plus the virtual visits that I think, and you you referenced virtual primary care, having so many people not have a primary care doctor. It's the reason so many people, sick people end up in emergency rooms. They don't have anywhere else to go. To the extent that we can supplement the, the deficit that exists in some communities of primary care doctors locally, and perform routine services that are we're licensed to provide, you know, state by state, you know, depending on what the uh, state rules are, takes pressure off of that primary care community. Uh, and it also keeps people from getting unnecessarily sicker because you get an earlier diagnosis and earlier understanding of what they may be dealing with. Yeah, you know, Dave, you, you talk about uh, the mix and. It raises the question, I think, about a reasonable revenue mix. Um, what does your crystal ball say with regard to revenue mix of a company such as CVS? And let's not push it. You know, you said you joined 17 years ago. Let's, let's just push it to 2030. Is it a materially different revenue mix than it is today? Well, I think some of the variables in the equation that would affect my answer has to do with what role does the government play in healthcare in 2030? Uh, there are some people out there who ardently believe that the government should be a single payer for healthcare, some kind of a national healthcare program like they have in the UK or Canada, which is more services are meted out and panels decide whether or not you should get a new knee installed. I have a hard time believing that America will actually accept that. There are certainly ways to provide healthcare for those that are not adequately covered today, which stops short of saying everyone has to follow some kind of prescriptive health care from the government. And I hope that that's what we focus on with 300 and whatever we are, 35 million people. Various studies suggest that there are probably 30 million people who could have better coverage and maybe 10 that are particularly more acutely uncovered, if you will, sometimes by their own choice. And as you well know, young people in particular, are notorious for saying, gee, I don't need health insurance. Right. Uh, I'd rather have cable TV and a new car. 28 years old and completely healthy, you can understand how they get to that conclusion. So having catastrophic health care coverage becomes important, and that can be delivered very cost-effectively. So I, I hate to see a one-size-fits-all outcome, but let's say we don't have that. I think private providers, managed care organizations like Aetna, who are going to help people 
stay healthy, you know, more and more focus on health. You know, there are five chronic disease states that generate more than 50% of the costs in healthcare. And I think the last time I saw numbers, it's $4 trillion. And that doesn't, inc- that was $4 trillion steady state before COVID. Right. I got to believe the numbers substantially bigger now just because of what we've been through if no other reason by dint of what the government has spent you know dealing with it at all levels so four trillion dollars fifty percent of that coming from uh, hyperlipidemia hypertension diabetes asthma allergy and you know depression mental health issues so half the cost and if you dive deeper there's a significant linkage still to smoking, even though that's diminished, it's still there. And, and sort of diet and health, what I'll call health awareness. The number of people that we see who come to a minute clinic not feeling just right and are diagnosed with extremely high blood pressure, uh, hypertension, but didn't know it. It's those things that you cannot see and don't necessarily feel until later on that I think we can make a lot of progress with diagnostics. And you've seen all the things Apple is doing with the watch and the many other wearables that are going to give feedback. Tremendous progress made in diabetes, monitoring blood sugar in real time, keeping people from crashing and getting into critical situations. And if you've ever had a friend or a relative who's diabetic, you've probably seen some of that. So I just think diagnostics in general whether they're done, you know, individually through digital connections, you know, directly to you and your body, to a healthcare provider who can help say, gee, your sugar seems to be going, you know, you need to pay attention. Or if you don't respond to it, someone can actually uh, help you with it. I just think we're going to be in a different world in 2030 about awareness, early onset, being able to deal with it at a point in time when you can make a difference where you can actually turn around the course of a, a disease like diabetes. And then in some of the areas, one that I'm particularly interested in is kidney dialysis, which if, again, if you've ever known anyone who has to go sit through dialysis for seven, eight hours in a dialysis community right. center, CVS is in the process of getting approval and launching a home dialysis capability where you actually dialyze while you sleep. You can self-connect dialysis is performed while you're sleeping and, you know, the rest of your days can be spent differently than sitting in a dialysis clinic. So I just think there are going to be more and more of those. You know, the progress we've made with vaccines, you know, using mRNA and that platform will be used undoubtedly for other pathogens than COVID coronaviruses and then immunotherapy for all manner of, of cancers are making great strides you know, so that all of these things lead to a reduction, an increase in life, quality of life, reduction of cost, and sort of treating the consequences rather than curing uh, diseases. And we think we can play a role across many of those fronts by raising awareness, being an advocate, providing a consumer healthcare experience that is more welcoming and more of an advocacy role for the patient as a consumer. We're going to ask a question, a series of questions about ESG in a moment, but it's within that framework that I wanted to just finalize our discussion about healthcare. 
And that is 2030, in order to get to the worlds that you're envisioning, can we get there given current course and speed of how quickly we are evolving what we offer, how we offer it? Or is it going to require a radical change in order to meet those 2030 views? What would your assessment be? Again, you know, I'm an optimist by nature. We're obviously in a highly politicized environment. There are supporting facts for almost any point of view you want to put out there. Mm-hmm. And I think if you take the broadest perspective, there's no reason the United States should not have the best healthcare outcomes in the world, given our the wealth of the country, the technology available, the capabilities. And so what gets in the way of that is, you know, obviously simple things like access, simple things like having a, a good understanding of what's available and where to get it, you know, to truly deliver uh, life-saving services or medicines to communities. You know, I, I just hope that we can, through our political process, fund the right things that make the biggest differences and, you know, not use precious resources in ways that don't get the best results. And I know that's a very high level kind of statement, but it's really, uh, in my view, critical that we end up with not trying to boil the ocean, but really try to deliver, you know, what's needed community by community and do it in an economically fair way. Employers have paid traditionally for a substantial amount of healthcare costs and you know, it's a big number on a corporate P&L. I think that that's true of both active employees and retirees. And in, in the Bell system, at and you know, we had a substantial number of retirees that were always included. And then you had health care provided through a lot of organized labor, highly prizes the health care benefits that they've negotiated for over a long period of time. And right. I'd say during my experience at AT&T going back a while, you know, frankly, wage increases were always talked about, but health care benefits were, you know, were the big hit single. And I don't think that that is something that organized labor wants to give up on. Say, sure, we're, we're going to trust the government to deliver health care. In fact, I think you know, in the case of Obamacare, the so-called Cadillac plans, I don't think some elected officials fully understood a lot of those existed inside of organized labor contracts with employers. So they had to kind of go a little bit slower on that because the idea you're going to tax those benefits that had been right. negotiated for was a non-starter. Right. Right. You know, as thank you me. talk about, yeah, thank you for that section there, David. And hearing you talk about healthcare and the diagnostic approach to improving awareness, to me, that really resonates with what's in your 2020 Corporate Social Responsibility Report. Uh, In there, CVS states that its purpose is helping people on their path to better health. Healthy people is just one pillar of your Transform Health 2030 strategy. And there are three other pillars, healthy business, healthy community, and healthy planet. And each pillar comes with clear objectives to achieve by 2030 as well. So there's that 2030 view again. Can you tell me a bit about how the pandemic has sort of influenced those different pillars and how you come to 
your goals for CSR looking at that 2030 date? I'll give it a shot. I think that, you know, understanding that as a healthcare provider, you know, I, I know that our ability to have better outcomes really depends on diagnosis indications early. So back to our questions about or discussion about diagnostics and the role they play. But then once you're in a situation where people need acute care or longer term care to deal with situations that they have, having a place to go where you can get questions answered and advocacy, it's interesting to me, pharmacists have always been if not the most trusted healthcare provider or healthcare professional, I should say, always near the top. And I, you know, I think that as we've studied that, I think we have 30,000 pharmacists now. It's because people feel less intimidated asking a pharmacist question about, you know, treatment or what's this drug do and why might I be on it? And we work hard at not only being empathetic, but professional and knowledgeable without usurping a doctor's role. And in some cases, you know, we have the ability to work with a patient, for example, something as simple as, gee, there's a generic for this particular drug that your health plan will cover 100% of the cost where on this particular medicine that you've been prescribed, which is a branded version, you know, you're going to have a 50% copay or whatever it may be according to your plan. You know, we have taken that kind of advocacy directly. And what we found interesting, and we contact the doctor's office and say, hey, you prescribed Lipitor, atorvastatin is fully covered. 85% of the time, doctors will change their prescription. And there may be a very valid medical reason they choose one, not necessarily a generic one medicine over another. For example, there are, I think, 19 or 20 drugs in the, what I'll call the therapeutic class for high blood pressure and different people react different ways. So I think we play an important advocacy role and are trusted. Pharmacists are at the core of that. Uh, nurse practitioners, we have deployed in the store. And then something that we created with health hubs called Healthcare Concierge. It's the first person you see when you go to a health hub to sort of determine what's going on, what are you looking for, what brings you here today, and then provide you know someone, and typically those are nurse practitioners or have some medical training. The idea is that we can be a better place for people to come who are maybe intimidated or not. You know, they go to the doctor's office and they get you know a nurse practitioner typically sees them, and then the doctor comes by. It depends on what obviously the illness is. We think there's a real need to connect with people and connect with people in an extremely empathetic but professional way. I have a niece, Dave, that just received her PhD in pharmacy, and uh, she's going to be interested in listening to this. I think she uh, she has a job for life, to say the very least. But when we look at um, CVS's Transform Health again going to 2030, it was clear that you aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And I'm wondering, of all the choices, why was it that body of work that was most appealing such that you anchored your strategy to it? I don't know that I can give you as good an answer there as probably I should be able to, but you know, looking for things that are broad gauged and when you're thinking about going out to 2030, we are looking to make real progress that's measurable, not just nice words on a page. And so we have seen people create their own sort of view of the world, if you will. It's harder for comparisons to be made. 
And so I think one part of this that was appealing is that you can end up with, you know, something that becomes more widely accepted and then you can benchmark against it. I think that was part of the thinking in terms of where we decided to go. And then also, if you look at the scale of the investment that we intend to make, I think our plan is that we'll spend by 2030, $85 billion in inclusive wellness, economic development, and advancement opportunities for our colleagues so that you know we end up with not only a longstanding commitment to diversity, because that's what our customer base looks like. It's extremely diverse and it's multi-geographic, but it's the right place for us to be able to make a difference because we are, in many ways, the front door to healthcare. We are local. And that's something that even with the use of things like virtual care, it's still focused in terms of physical attributes on a local pharmacy, a local health hub, a local managed care facility, the extent we have them, and obviously the high-touch things like vaccination and testing. You were mentioning earlier your experience at AT&T and how the rising cost of healthcare was a real inspiration, I think it's fair to say, to uh, perhaps turn your attention towards matters of health-related activity in your own career, in your own path. Now, when we look at all the boards and all the experience you've had with other chair people and CEOs, et cetera. When you convene for whatever setting, you talk about a multitude of things, but when the conversation turns to corporate responsibility or the environmental, social, and governance issues, do you get the sense that the level of interest is equal to all the other matters that we're talking about? Or do eyes start rolling in the back of their heads? Or are they extremely attentive more than perhaps other issues? How would you categorize how seriously these issues are when it turns to ES, matters of ESG? Well, I mean, you know, completely candidly, it's a, a full range. I think in some businesses, if you take PayPal, for example, PayPal exists because large money center banks uh, have largely abandoned dealing with lower-end consumers. What I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just describe, uh, let's say non-high net worth consumers. You know, every major bank talks about their high net worth programs and, you know, sure. wealth management programs and the like. PayPal talks about democratizing financial services, whether it be for access to credit, buy now, pay later, managing a series of payment vehicles, you know, different credit cards issued by different institutions, bank accounts, or even peer-to-peer payments like Venmo, it is not surprising that PayPal spends a lot of time thinking about that whole category of consumers who just don't have the kind of options or end up paying the highest possible fees and everything imaginable from wire transfers to bounce check fees. And, and that's frankly why it's grown so much. I mean, PayPal will end this year perilously close to 500 million consumers across the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only the fact that it's a true digital electronic wallet that allows people at, you know, at all levels to manage their resources carefully and cautiously, but very conveniently. Flipping back to healthcare. I think we really do represent, with 100 million customers, an extremely diverse customer set. And you know, one of the reasons you know, wading into political situations is just not appropriate, I think, in general for businesses. You know, it would be impossible 
for someone like CVS to wade into a position and not offend some significant percentage of customers based on political beliefs. And that's, we just have carefully focused on what we can do. And sort of back to your original question, I find in boards that I sit on various levels of appetites. And that was really the point of going off into PayPal. I don't think that I've seen a case where anyone is unconcerned about diversity or unconcerned about equity at all. It's a question of what do you do in the microcosm of your company to make sure that there is a clear level playing field, that there is a colorblind, genderblind meritocracy available, but you are aware that not in every case can you achieve that without really focusing on it, right? It's not going to happen on its own. So that's why our commitments have, I think, real dollars behind it and real focus behind it, because we want to be the very best we can be at doing it. I think that there is a risk of the ESG sort of mission to get sometimes overwhelm other things that businesses have to do. Uh, so frankly, having board oversight is appropriate. Uh, management goes to work every day. They've got to deliver. We've got to fill 2 billion prescriptions a year. We've got to see patients. And if you don't have it at the highest levels of the company, it won't end up getting the focus. And so it's very appropriate from a governance perspective. That's why we review it at the board multiple times per year. Uh, we have an annual report. We compare how we did, what we intended to do, where did we fall short, where did we exceed, and where can we run for daylight to do more. And that's the role of the board. Is once something gets, you know, we say we're going to do something, then it's up to us to ensure with management that it actually gets done. Does that mean, Dave, that, I beg your pardon, I'm so sorry. Does that mean that there is one human being, either on the board or within the ranks, that is ultimately responsible for ESG matters? Is it like a CFO is the clear person for financial matters? Is there an ESG god at CVS? We have multiple people who contribute to that role mm -hmm. um, in, in the area of diversity in our, our workforce. Uh, we have someone who is responsible for the programs that we have put in place and the new ones that we'll be trying to ensure that we sustain a diverse employee group. In terms of environmental, we have someone who is really uh, leading for the company, both our community connections as well as uh, environmental things that we can do to increase the health planet. And we have board members who are passionate about it. Right. Mary Shapiro, who's former SEC chair, for example, right. has been uh, a very outspoken person on our board about plastic bags. It's been a hot button for Mary from the very beginning as we work through how do we replace bags that end up in the ocean or somewhere with other things that can be recyclable, for example. Right. So we have, we have a lot of nerve centers for issues. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's, that's where diversity on the board is important. You know, we have four extremely capable women on our board coming from very different backgrounds. Mary Anthony and Nancy and DeParle, who ran CMS in the Obama administration, Center for Medicare, Medicaid Services. Alicia DeCadreau, who was uh, assistant general counsel at Eli Lilly, so she came from the pharma world. Right. And they make significant contributions. And that's you know, the same with 
other important communities uh, that we serve. We we have, for example, Navarro was a Hispanic-focused drugstore chain that operated principally in South Florida and is now sort of across the Sun Belt through Texas. And I think we had we acquired 70 of those stores, and we have evolved that so that in CVS stores in those communities, we still have Navarro in some cases signage, but it's, you know, CVS merchandise inside, but it's what we refer to as CVS EMOS. So we're selling what you expect from CVS plus more, sometimes even like a, almost a bodega feeling to reach that community. Mm. The reason I bring that up when governor DeSantis uh, was trying to reach communities in South Florida, Miami Dade in particular, and there was confusion or even distrust about vaccination. And he was earnestly trying to get that community, uh, you know, basically everyone over 65 in Florida was his focus to get vaccinated, but were lagging in some of those minority communities. Uh, we had great connectivity and we were able to help the state enhance its outreach by actually calling people who had been customers in the past or current customers and said, you know, have you been vaccinated? If you haven't, we're happy to schedule you. Uh, you're over 65. You can come right in the store and had really good response to that, which I think goes back to what's a brand stand for? Or is there trust? You know, are these people that are people that we will listen to? Mm-hmm. Well, you'll be happy to know we saved the easiest uh, category of questions for the last. With that, uh, let me turn it back to Brian. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, and you raised the topic of vaccines there, and I didn't want to let this interview go by without asking about your opinion on that and um, in the case of vaccine mandates, because you've learned so much at CVS Health, all the insights of being on the front line of putting doses into arms. And uh, recently, CVS Health mandated that all of its patient-facing employees must get fully vaccinated by the end of November. And I wonder if you want to comment on uh, that mandate and why now is the time for it. But mainly, I'd like to hear what advice you have for other companies that are contemplating the vaccine mandate. Well, I want to speak, you know, obviously I'm in this call representing uh, CVS, but I do want to say that when you have healthcare professionals interacting with people, testing, diagnostics, administering, other drugs, I think it's extremely important, again, back to that trust that that the consumer can trust that, you know, we as a company are doing everything we can to keep them safe. And that's true of our colleagues as well, who may be exposed in the course of their own work. But as far as uh, companies are concerned, each company's got to look at it, look at their employees, look at their exposures, how many are going to be together if they're working in close proximity and close quarters to one another. I think it's really uh, advantageous to have, to have uh, vaccinated employees. Dave, I was going to ask you a, a different question. I'm just going to ask a more volatile one, actually, perhaps. And when you think about the benefit of hindsight, um, but knowing what we know, was there an opportunity and if so, back when? How far back do we go? We're, we could be at 80%, 85% of 
vaccinated versus the 54% fully vaccinated where we are today. Did we, what did we miss and when did we miss that opportunity? Well, or was it ever I, there? I, I actually think when you go back and judge this with the full benefit of history and hindsight, the vaccines got developed in record time, mm-hmm. right? We, we have been incredibly lucky that the work on the mRNA vaccine platform had taken place and could be adapted rapidly. And I can remember hearing that, you know, the sequenced genome of the COVID-19 virus got done in days, you know, after it was delivered. And so that science was able to say, okay, what is this beast? Mm-hmm. What, what part of its genetic makeup can we actually focus on? And then you, we've heard all the stuff about spike protein and so forth, which really was a unique feature, which proved to be the, the vehicle for the vaccines. So A, it got done in record time with adequate testing. And given that, you know, the pandemic was raging, you know, all kinds of debate that we tested enough, that we know enough. And I think that, you know, whether it was uh, the outcome of that testing, good fortune, you know, put whatever you want. We, we got an emergency use authorization and it has undoubtedly saved millions of lives yeah. uh, from certainly on millions on a global level. I think in terms of the uptake of the vaccine, you know, we have a federal system in the U.S. And so I had the opportunity to observe Project Light, what was it called, Warp Speed with Right. General Perna being logistics expert, mm-hmm. and I can't remember the guy's name who was the the doctor who was sort of receiving the medical piece and establishing the necessary um, distribution chain, supply chain things. You know, like Pfizer obviously required a cold chain that exceeded the historical kind of normal cold chain. You know, it had to be in deep freeze. And then thought out, and then you had a limited shelf life. Moderna right. is a little different than that. Right. Um, and I think we sort of got through that. Um, states, you know, there was, uh, you know, at least speaking from a CVS perspective, I think we worked hard on creating these massive vaccination sites. And maybe there was no other way to do it at the time. But I think once we got past the nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities, and then you, you get into sort of independent living facilities, you know, again, people over 65 typically, and got into the broader community of people not in those facilities, may have had a little bit of a slip there in timing. And it, and it wasn't so much about vaccine availability, it was sort of some confusion at the state level, not the federal level, of what the states were going to end up doing. Because let's face it, we did a, there were 50 governors and 50 state public health officials and 50 different kinds of situations in terms of urban or suburban, rural, you know, how, how you got it done. And, you know, people were driving across state lines. You know, we had people coming to the U.S. to get vaccinated. And so the controls early on were not there. You are, you are illustrating the reason why we wanted to invite this chat from you. Uh, you know, you've not been in one but two mega revolutions in your career, and not as a participant, 
uh, from the sideline, but an active participant. And Dave, I can't imagine there are far uh, there are too many. There are others that have that kind of experience. And what a what an amazing front row seat you've had in uh, in the last n number of years. I won't put the number on, but at least we know it's not more than sixty-seven. Dave, uh, just very grateful for your yeah. time. Sure. Brian, you want to wrap up? Yes. Thanks, Ken. Uh, I will just wrap up by saying thanks again, David, for your time with us and answering our questions so thoroughly. We really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad to do it. I, I hope uh, some of these things uh, are difficult to distill down to, you know, fine points. And so they leave themselves very broad uh, answers. And, you know, I, I just leave the parting point is that respect across the spectrum of beliefs is so important to a free open society working well and i encourage everyone to you know respect others points of view and listen and seek to understand versus just simply criticize and i think we do that uh, in many ways we'd all be a lot better off and ken thanks so much for joining me on the interview as well really great pleasure thank you so much dave and for our listeners, oh, thanks for tuning in to Tech Insights. Remember to subscribe to the podcast. You have to subscribe or else you'll miss all of our great future episodes on tech trends. Whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, really, wherever you get your podcasts, we're available. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Jackson.